0: Uh, welcome. Some of you are here for the first time because uh, God had you doing other things this weekend, and glad to see you here and look forward to our time together. Uh, we've talked about uh, kind of a foundational understanding of the prophets. What do we need to know to begin understanding and handling some of the challenges of prophetic passages? Lots more to talk about there. And then last night we looked at Jonah, a prophet who gives us a window into his heart. As a callous-hearted guy who. Wasn't interested in embracing the agenda God had for his people then and similar to what he calls us to now. And uh, today we're going to look at Micah 6, verses 1 to 8. And I would kind of title this this, this, uh, sermon, The Need to Be Relationship Focused Instead of Task or Law Focused. When you think about uh, what God asks of his people, uh, expectations are important to all of us. When we're given a task, any kind of a job, we all would prefer a very clear set of expectations rather than little to no guidance. Who wants to have a job with no expectations? and You're going to get crunched for sure if you don't meet the hidden expectations. So again, we, we like expectations, and I've seen again and again that parents have come to realize that they actually can have high expectations for the behavior of their children. They can expect obedience. You know what happens when parents actually expect and demand first-time obedience from their children in the context of that relationship of parent to child. They see their children developing a pattern of obedience. Sometimes in the world around us, the suggestion is, ah, forget it, it's impossible. You have to kind of negotiate with them. Well, I tell my kids that... uh, our household is a benevolent dictatorship. Mom and I are the benevolent, the loving dictators, if you will, if we wanna vote on something, go ahead. You get one vote, we get 100. The point is though, we're charting the course for our family and so we've sought, as we've reared our kids, and we haven't done it perfectly for sure, but we've sought to expect respect and first time obedience. My point is expectations impact life. But you're wrong, expectations can cause great damage. In another area, when a, woman, a man and a woman get married, if they have unbiblical or incorrect expectations of what their God-given role might be in that special relationship, trouble is around the corner. Well, that, that whole issue of expectations can happen in a person walk with God. You know, the various kinds of religions in our world that teach their followers to expect that their God will or must act in a certain way in response to their obedience. And this belief affects the conduct of the worshipers. Those worshipers often do what they do in order to convince their God to do something for them. So that's, that's a cha-ching, cha-ching kind of an approach. And then if life doesn't go well, you can automatically assume that they're bums and losers. Sometimes people are crushed by the experience of affliction because they've made the mistaken notion that their God is in the business of making sure that his followers have abundance and happiness. And that happens in Christianity, too. Not just in the health and wealth gospel movement, but there are people in evangelical churches that have a mistaken notion of God's role and what he expects and and what he, he does in connection to how we live. And the short version is, different message, is that what we do is not buying God's favor. What we do is meant to be the overflow of a heart that's been so infinitely, eternally enriched that we long to honor His name by obeying. We're not getting anything out of the deal because we've gotten the best eternal salvation already. So even in our world, there are believers who put themselves in a kind of religious performance treadmill. The expectations that God has for His followers dominates their attention. Now I want you to understand, and We'll talk about this later as well. I, God has given us expectations, and I'm not throwing those under the bus. I'm not throwing them out the window. He has commands and prohibitions He's given us. I'm not saying those are unimportant. My concern is when, when the Christ followers put those expectations God has as the dominant thing in their lives, they're a rule focused, task focused pursuit of God. And in this situation, what God demands, the rules and requirements are the primary object of their focus. And and it's distracting because what I'm going to suggest this morning is that what God wants first is for us to pursue a growing and vibrant relationship with Him based on truth, based on His Word, and that the overflow of that heart that is a growing relationship with Him is going to be God-honoring obedience. So what would you say God expects of us? What does God want most from us? Well, this morning in Micah 6, we're going to see what the Biblical prophet had to say about what God wants most, or first, from His children. Now, I would normally want to set this chapter in its larger literary context, and I put together some notes to that effect, but out the window they go. I just have to be realistic. And uh, let me just tell you a few things about the time in which the prophet Micah lived and ministered. He was a contemporary with the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is called like the city prophet, ministering to royalty in the upper class in Jerusalem. And Micah was the kind of the country prophet out in the, out in the hinterlands, preaching to God's people in different parts of the southern kingdom. He grew up in a town called Moriseth, Moriseth Gath down in the Shephala down in that area to the, to the west of Jerusalem. In addition to some good news Micah has, uh, Micah 5 two. he talked about the coming of this promised one who will be born in Bethlehem Ephrathah and who will, who will eventually rule over this world according to God's will. In addition to that good news, Micah does present a fair bit of bad news because he's dealing with a hard-hearted, rebellious nation. He has to rebuke the pattern of God's people to pursue rebellion. And one of the big problems he confronts is Israel's tendency to keep up their religious appearances, eating the right food, offering sacrifices, celebrating the feast days, while at the same time, their dark hearts drove them to treat fellow Israelites with injustice and a lack of compassion. They're putting God on display in the way they're even treating each other, all the same time, they have that veneer of obedience going on. They didn't clearly understand, they clearly didn't understand what God wanted most from them. He didn't want, primarily, fundamentally, activity, tasks being accomplished, religious performance. He wanted obedience, for sure. What we wanted first was to have a growing, vibrant relationship that his people were pursuing with him by faith that showed up in radically different living that provided a clear picture of who their awesome and great God was. So I hope in this morning's message we'll see that God desires that we as his children have a true and sincere growing relationship with him from the heart inside out. He longed at our walk with him is not merely an external show, a a veneer of spirituality, but more importantly, an inner reality that shows up in world-impacting obedience. So we're gonna begin by looking here at, Court is now in session, chapter six, verses one and two. Let's, Let's go ahead and look at Micah six. Listen, Sorry. now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord is a case against his people, and he will argue it against Israel. My people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Indeed, I, in all reality, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the place of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam ahead of you. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, proposed? What Balaam, the son of Boor, answered? What he answered him? And what happened from the acacia grove from Shittim to Gilgal? So that you may acknowledge, remember, know. The Lord's righteous acts. What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and with 10,000 streams or rivers of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the child of my body? for my own sin, for the sin of my soul. Mankind, he has told you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love mercy, faithfulness, loving kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So, we have court is now in session, verses one and two, the first major point of the passage. In our litigious society, we have heard of all kinds of lawsuits that are brought before our court system, and many of them, not all, but there are a lot of them that seem to be totally frivolous lawsuits that crowd the legal system, as well as some important ones. But Micah 6, one eight represents a lawsuit that God brings against Israel. And it's a lawsuit that's anything but trivial. It has great, far-reaching importance. It's driving at the heart of Israel's relationship with the Lord and what's not happening there. So let me introduce you to the major players and then explain the biblical foundation for this lawsuit. So this, this section is like the Supreme Court case, Israel versus Yahweh. And I hope you can see with me why I think these verses depict a courtroom setting. You'll notice the three participants here are the accused, Israel, the witnesses, mountains and the hills, and then the prosecutor or judge, God. And verse 1 opens with a call for Israel to pay attention to what Yahweh has to say. He has listened to what the Lord says. And as a matter of fact, this statement occurs abundantly in many sections of the prophetic book. When it says hear or listen, it's quite often the heading for a section because you wants the audience to listen, to perk up their ears. So let's meet the first participant in the lawsuit, and that's Israel, the accused, to present your case. So the verse says, stand up, plead your case before the mountains, let the hills hear what you have to say. The the clause, plead your case, defend yourself, state your case, gives us this kind of legal flavor, we kind of can picture in our heads a courtroom before us. Judge, prosecutor, defense attorney, witnesses, audience. The Lord challenges Israel to defend itself against the charges. He's bringing to them this indictment of covenant treachery. And then we have the second group. The second participants, the mountains and the hills, the enduring witnesses. Listen and compare. It says there in Micah 1, rise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Then verse 2, listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth. What's the deal? Mountains and hills, mountains, the enduring foundations of the earth. Well, this occurs also in ancient or eastern treaties in the Old, as well as in the Old Testament where you have mountains and hills are personified as legal witnesses that will help settle the dispute between God and Israel. The mountains and hills are, are, are regarded as original and continuing witnesses to the covenantal agreement and the ongoing relationship between the Lord in Israel. They refer to the mountains and the hills and heavens and the earth for an important reason. So if you see here in Isaiah 1-2, at the beginning of the prophet, the prophet's writing, he he says, Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. And that isn't just trivial language. that's meant to do is to call the, the, the listeners back to the idea that God had established a relationship with them through Abrahamic and Mosaic Covenant. And in that Mosaic Covenant, he's calling for their loyalty. at something to which they'd committed themselves. And the heavens and the earth are enduring witnesses. They're there. They heard the words, if you will. They're personified as those who had heard the words of allegiance that Israel had offered. They're enduring consistent witnesses that can testify to what Israel professed they would do. Deuteronomy thirty-two, one. Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth, because they were there. And so the Lord calls forth for these participants to, to speak, if you will. So when the biblical prophets refer to the heavens and the earth or the mountains and the hills as part of their exhortation, it's not just a meaningless reference to part of creation for who knows why. No, these parts of creation are silent but enduring witnesses to the establishment of this unique and covenant, special intimate covenant relationship between the Lord and his covenant nation. The idea is that they had witnessed the Lord's establishing this unique covenant relationship with his people, as well as Israel's glad acceptance of that relationship and the demands that went with it. So here Micah talks about this third, the second participant in the lawsuit to uh, call them to attention. Because he has something to say about that covenant relationship to which they were enduring witnesses way back in the time of the Mosaic Covenant. So can you see how the prophet is piling up these terms to make the reader imagine they're in the courtroom, mountains, and hills as witnesses. Here, the Lord's accusation. The Lord is a case against Israel. He is lodging a charge against Israel. But then we meet the, the next participant, and that's Yahweh, the covenant Lord. He has a dispute with Israel. In the end of verse two, it says, because the Lord has a case against his people. So think about the intimacy of that relationship, because when you think about the Old Testament, and even more so we think about the Mosaic Law, or the Mosaic Covenant, is intimacy the first word in your heart and mind? Ah, no. You know, it's kind of like misery, pain, you know, torture, whatever. It's just uh, it's like, I would rather not be in that scenario. And I wouldn't vote to live during the time of the Mosaic Law, but I think we misunderstand what it's intended for. So the prophet who's speaking on the Lord's behalf introduces the dispute the Lord has with his people. And I want you to notice he says his people here in the midst of this painful indictment. It isn't you losers, you bums, you strangers. It's his people. And then in verses 3 and 5, you look down and you're going to see, he says, my people, the Lord says, my people. Remember how I yesterday tried to summarize or emphasize what the core statement was that captured the essence of the Mosaic Covenant? What's the statement? I will be your God. You will be my people. Your God, my people. So, quite often in his text, when we read about your God, my people, that's scratching that itch, that this is this relationship that God has been pursuing with his people that they've committed themselves to. That's the backdrop here. Your God, my people. Here's his people. So, throughout the Old Testament, those expressions, his people, my people, emphasize the Lord's covenant love for the nation. According to the prophet Micah, they're his people. God calls them my people. He longed that they would wholeheartedly devote themselves to this relationship with him. And so when we think about this lawsuit that God is bringing against his people, it isn't like most lawsuits in our court system where the two sides kind of hate each other's guts, right? There's animosity and all kinds of pain between them. No, this is a God whose heart is heavy, that the people that he's chosen have so pursued this life of coveted treachery that he has to bring this indictment, this lawsuit against them. Then we come to the severity of the charge for the Lord has a case against his people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. What's the point of this whole lawsuit thing? Do the prophets do this regularly? There's this prophetic lawsuit form that shows up in the prophets. Well, first of all, we have to understand the theologic foundation for all this legal emphasis. It isn't like Micah's is a lawyer who's just trying to apply his trade here. When the Lord entered into a covenant relationship with his chosen people, he was committing himself to certain obligations. And he made certain demands of his covenant to people. In the Mosaic Covenant, unlike the Abrahamic Covenant, which is a unilateral covenant, where God is the only one who's going to bring it to pass, the Mosaic Covenant is kind of like a bilateral covenant where the Lord says, I will be your God, and I'm expecting you to be my people. I'm going to be your protector, your defender, care for your welfare, provide for your needs, potentially in ways that are going to be amazing, and I'm expecting loyalty, love, obedience, allegiance, purity, and holiness. So the Lord made this commitment to that relationship, and when the Lord, when Moses presents this commitment to Israel in Exodus 19, right after the verses we read a couple times yesterday, after he talks about, if you hear my voice and obey my covenant, you'll be unto me, treasure of possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation. It says at the very end of verse 8, we will do everything the Lord has said we embrace this covenant relationship and the expectations that come with it, the the expectations you've given us to help us be your people. So they committed themselves to this exclusive covenant relationship with the Lord, their maker, their creator, their redeemer. But throughout the history of Israel, all too often, they committed covenant treachery. They rejected Yahweh's exclusive claim on their loyalty in their hearts. We talked yesterday how a big problem Addressed by the prophets, and they've sinned and better repent. As this idolatry is the Yahweh plus Yahweh plus other gods. And so, Mike, along with many of the Old Testament prophets, communicates the seriousness of Israel's offenses with this lawsuit language. And those of us who are married understand the seriousness of this issue. At some point in time, with God as your witness, as well as the pastor, the members of the bridal party, and the people who attended your wedding you and your spouse made some high and lofty commitments to one another. They weren't just empty words. They weren't just trivial promises. You weren't just snickering under your breath as you said those things. They cannot and never must be taken lightly. They're serious. And so in a similar fashion, Israel longs, Israel's God longs to have an exclusive covenant relationship with the people that they happily pursue. That's why court is now in session. We see the severity of the relationship, of the charge, sorry. Let's go on to the Lord's indictment of Israel, verses 3 to 5. So what is he charging Israel with? He's introduced the fact of an indictment against Israel, but he's not specified the charges or brought evidence of their guilt. And notice he has his probing questions in verse 3. And this is totally unique in a lawsuit world for sure. Unlike any customary court case where a trial begins by having the prosecution lay the charges against the accused. This is why we're here, folks. We're going to attempt to prove why this person did this. In this scenario, the beginning of this lawsuit, the Lord begins by turning the scrutiny toward himself. He doesn't focus on their covenant treachery and their rebellion. He he gives them, the accused, the first shot. He says there in verse 3, My people, what have I done to you? Or how have I wearied you? Has he conducted himself improperly? I mean, it's almost like there's a complaint circulating among the Israelites that God had failed them in some way, and because he failed them, that's why they're rebelling against this covenant relationship. He was, he was a horrible God, and so they were rebelling. Has God failed to bring to pass something he promised? My people, how, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? How have I wronged you? The burden word, how have I burdened you, is used for wearing out someone physically, frustrating someone's efforts to accomplish a task, exhausting someone's patience, So the Lord is asking his chosen nation, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? He's throwing out the the idea, could this broken relationship be the result of something Yahweh had done? Were God's people suggesting that Yahweh, their deliverer, was really an oppressor, like Egypt, and therefore was the cause for their treachery? It's like Yahweh says, Israel, I don't know what to say when I see your rebellion and hear your complaining. I can't understand that. Go ahead, Israel. What are the evidences of my unfaithfulness that could explain somehow the way you've been conducting yourself? I have to imagine there's a long silence because God has been nothing but the faithful and loving and kind God bringing to pass what he promised, ever faithful to his covenant commitments. And then he demands their attention. Answer me or testify against me. God is telling Israel, support you or defend your complaints against me. Substantiate your charges against me. They have nothing to say. And so then God turns in verses 4 and 5 and he gives this, this abbreviated historical reminder and there's so much more God could have said about his past dealings with this covenant nation. It was encyclopedic in the extent of all the things God had done on behalf of his people to invest in them in concrete, tangible ways on earth. But here Micah summarizes all that could be said by referring to three national heroes, two enemies, and a stupendous, miraculous event. And I'm going to fly through these, camp it, the first one and the last one. First of all, the enemy, number one, Egypt. In verse 4, he says to them, Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the place of slavery. There's so much that God could have said about this past dealings with his people. He starts by talking about this enemy of Egypt. He begins his historical overview by referring to his impressive deliverance of his servant nation out of Egypt. I brought you up. I redeemed you. So think about the action the Lord took, these two verbs, brought up and redeemed. This is not insignificant. Something obscure to brought up be brought up. It it occurs 50 times, over 50 times in the Old Testament, and it describes how God extricated, delivered his people out of a horrific set of circumstances from which they had no hope of deliverance. This action of deliverance was something deeply embedded in the history of Israel. It should have been well known to every Israelite that God brought them up. He He himself had brought this deliverance to pass. Go back and read the book of Exodus, and who else could take credit for the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea and the provision of food for them and all those scenarios. He brought them out. And uh, I want you to see something that's kind of because we talked about word plays and because I'm a geeky Hebrew guy, hang with me here, right? So I want you to see something here. Let me explain this next slide. So I want you to look at the end of verse 3. Right. Look at the Bible, the end of verse 3, where it says here, the verb is, how have I wearied you? Look at your Bible so you can see, how have I wearied you is part of what he asks them, how have I failed? And then in verse 4, it's I brought you up. Is part of his argument. What I want you to see here, this is that wordplay we were talking about, it's kind of like a zinger. So verse 3 ends with the phrase, how have I wearied you? And verse 4 begins with the affirmation, I brought you up. And, and these two verbs have very similar sound, but vastly different meanings. So the, on the left, the how I wearied you is halaitika and I brought you up is elitika. I mean, it's like cousins, right? Almost exactly the same in their sound. halaitika and haletika. And, 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 and it just means switching the place of two letters. One commentator, and I have that... On the slide has written, Sensitive to the power of sound upon his Judean audience. By this, this is that wordplay idea, where you take a sound and you put one next to it, in this case, a similar sound, different word for impact, sensitive to the power of sound upon his Judean audience. The prophet contrasts supposition, the idea the, the patently foolish idea that God had failed them with substance the harsh reality on the ground. He contrasts wild theory with sober fact, as if to say, I have not let you down. On the contrary, as a matter of fact, I brought you up. He's making a stark contrast between Israel's warped view of God's dealings with them, how have they wearied you, if that was their thought, with the plain facts of history. In fact, as a matter of fact, I brought you up. That second verb here in the verse Sorry, back to the action of the Lord Church. The first one it took was, I brought you up and then I redeemed you. Tons we could say here, but I didn't want to finish before noon, of course. Um, God redeemed them from bondage in Egypt, He freed them from the downtrodden existence of as slaves. And, and the idea of redeem, redeeming them as a, a, a redemption in, in, in history, in concrete ways, that really is the foundation for understanding redemption as individual salvation in the New Testament. But the Lord is not motivated by their obedience, but because of the relationship he has initiated with them. And his promise to them that he will bring them to the land of promise and he will make them a nation, Does, begins the process to bring that to pass by redeeming them from the land of Egypt. He freed them from their downtrodden existence. And so that brings us to then, the, that was the action they took. I brought you up, I redeemed you. And in the place of deliverance, the pairing of the land of Egypt and the house of slavery occurs over a dozen times in the Old Testament, and it reminds them it's not just a change of address, it was a a change of circumstance that was drastic and amazing. First of all, the land of Egypt, what's the big deal? Well, it's just that at that time in history, Egypt was one of the most powerful empires in the world. What God did in delivering his people out of the clutches of this powerful empire was absolutely unparalleled. In Deuteronomy 4, another great passage, Moses writes, he's telling God's people about this incomparable God they serve, and that incomparable God should motivate their radically different living. And he says, Has any other God, has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and outstretched armor, by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Now, it's a pretty long question. What's the answer? No. Has this ever happened before? No. You were shown these things that you might know that the Lord is God, and beside him there is no other. The point is, he's making the point that delivering God's people out of the land of Egypt is an unparalleled action done by an unparalleled God. It's a God who brings to pass what he promises. So instead of how have I failed you, how have I wearied you, he brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And he also redeemed them out of the place of slavery. And this is not just another name for Egypt, but it describes Egypt from Israel's perspective. Have you ever been in a place where you're so miserable? You know, just whether it's a location, a geographical place. We have some students who come to TMS and they can't wait to shake the dust of California off their feet. I mean, graduation is Sunday night, Monday morning, they're in their car and they're heading out of town. So I mean, that's the idea here, is, is, when he, he removes them from a place of slavery, it's not just a, a geographical issue, it's this burdensome, challenging, oppressive environment where there were slaves. And what God brought to pass. Was deliverance of his people from abject slavery to a foreign power, a situation from which there was no human deliverance, no chance of getting out of there, except for the intervention of God, to bring to pass what he'd promised. So Yahweh was not an inactive do-nothing God here in mean, on behalf of his people, in order to bring his promises to pass. He is their redeemer. He formed as a nation. So who Israel's great God was, and what he had done should have motivated their loyalty rather than triggered their disloyalty. Do you see the flow of Micah's through God? God is speaking through him. He's saying, as a matter of fact, I didn't fail you. I didn't weary you, but I delivered you from Egypt. That's enemy number one. Then there are three leaders quickly just to say... Moses, Aaron, and Miriam were not perfect people, but God installed before them leaders who were part of his accomplishing, his plan for them. They're part of his provision of flawless guidance as the land, as the country made their journey from Egypt to the promised land. Enemy anyway, number two, Balak of Moab. Just quickly, I have more to say. there. numbers 22 to 24. You have Balak, the king of Moab, is... Terrified of the Israelites who were coming. They've heard what happened to the Red Sea and to Egypt, and they they know trouble is coming, so they're going to try to, what, what, what do we do? What do we do? How do we blow this up? How do we get this stopped? And so he goes and grabs this prophet, false prophet Balaam, to pronounce a curse against Israel. In that world, curses were like doom statements. And even though God isn't worried about Balaam's curse, it isn't like Balaam could have made something happen. For his people who are hearing the curse in that world and to, and to demonstrate his absolute supremacy over even this effort by Balak, king of Moab, the Lord circumvents the plan to have Balaam curse God's people and forces Balaam to pronounce a blessing on his chosen people that included a prediction of the coming Messiah. You see, God, the point here, God turned aside the threat. And changes into a blessing because he's that kind of a God. He's this God who intervenes on behalf of his people. What he had begun by delivering his people out of the land of Egypt, continued by guiding them through the wilderness, and would not be frustrated by the attempted cursing of a pagan prophet. No, God is with them and fights before them. No, he hasn't failed them. He hasn't burdened them, but he delivered them. He's. Enemy number one, you have these three leaders. You have Balaam and Balak. And then you have the stupendous miracle in verse 5. Verse 5 says at the end, what happened from the Acacia Grove or Shittim to Gilgal? Well, where are those? This is a place where a map could be helpful. Okay, so we're thinking here in the in the land of Israel, we have the Jordan River there on the right two-thirds. The Jordan River coming down the Dead Sea at the very bottom, and notice on the right, the right-hand circle is Shittim or the acacia groves, right at the edge of the plains of Moab, and the left-hand circle is Jericho, but is beyond that. But the circles are on Gilgal, the suggested place where Israel would have camped for the seven and a half years or so of conquest. So the journey from Shittim to Gilgal was the last leg of the long journey from Egypt to the land of promise. And what happened at Shittim? Well, they were camped there when the Balaam episode took place. They, it, was the, it was Israel's last camp of their wanderings. The speech of Moses, giving them the book of Deuteronomy, was given here. The two Israelite spies came back from Jericho to this place. So was, God had done various things there that resulted in being camped at Shittim. But what about Gilgal? It wasn't just like driving from here to home, right? Okay, I'm going home, big deal, I'm glad. No, the, this was, uh, Gilgal was the first place the nation encamped in the land of promise. Other events took place in Gilgal, but here's the major point of mentioning from Shittim to Gilgal. What did the nation of Israel have to cross to get from Shittim to Gilgal? Oh, the creek, right? The Jordan Creek? Well, if you've been to Israel and you see the Jordan River, it is underwhelming, right? It's not like, whoa, it's amazing. I mean, you have some big rivers in Washington like we do in where we I used to be in Minnesota, when we first came to California, we looked at the Santa Clara River that flows through Santa Clarita. was this one big old massive dry riverbed. And my wife and I, the first time we saw it, we looked at each other and we said, boy, at home, rivers have water in them. Now, so the, the Jordan River isn't this massive river you might have around here. But it wasn't just crossing a river that was 20 feet across. It was at flood stage. It could have been a half a mile to two miles wide. And you're going to have 2 to 3 million people get across. And the Lord's going to stop those waters at just the right time, piling up about 13 miles to the north, piling up, held by the hand of God to allow His people to cross over. Whoa! That's divine intervention, friends. And God is trying to help His people. see. no, I haven't failed you. I haven't burdened you. As a matter of fact, I've intervened in your behalf. And you transition from Shittim to Gilgal from the Acacia Grove Till Gagel is a reminder of God's concern for them. And of course, he wants them to remember, to know, to be impacted by those interventions of God. So the Lord is the one who gave them the victories in conquering the land of Canaan, delivering them to the land of promise. The point is, Yahweh always does the right thing on behalf of his people. He can be trusted to bring precisely to pass what he promised. And so in this last main point. It was That was not what I wanted to do. Yeah. So we have this indictment of Israel's probing questions, his historical reminder. And he's, he's tried to drive home the point that He's not failed them to justify their conduct. As a matter of fact, he'd done all kinds of things as a faithful and loving God that should have encouraged their loyalty. And then we have Israel's response to Yahweh, verses 6 to 7. And you see, I'm suggesting here to you that you kind of have this pause between verses 5 and 6 after hearing Yahweh's painful questions and his convincing summary of the repeated interventions on their behalf. Israel should have been speechless. I mean, they should have been a pile of goo on the ground, right? Not even thinking of any justification for their covenant treachery. It's almost like we should be able to hear them say, Houston, we've got a problem. You know, we're toast, we're in big trouble. And they should have known beyond doubt that Yahweh had been absolutely faithful to them and they had been nothing less than covenant rebels. They have a problem. They're at odds with their covenant Lord. There's a chasm fixed between this God that is pursuing this relationship with them and the result of their conduct. It isn't like they don't have a relationship with God. He's pursuing them. It isn't that they aren't his chosen people. But there's this massive chasm in their relationship. How can they fix this problem? So I imagine there's a long pause between verses 5 and 6, and the prophet is speaking again in verse 6, and he, he plays the role of the inquisitive hypothetical Israelite worshiper. Call him Joe Israelite. Who wants to know what God really desires from his followers. I want you to notice something with me here as we go through this. This hypothetical Israelite speaking in verses 6 to 7. He doesn't seem to be speaking directly to the Lord. It's like he's asking someone else what he's supposed to do to bridge this gap between him and his covenant Lord. It's like this hypothetical Israelite is standing outside of the sanctuary of God and the door is locked. Knock, 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 knock. How do I get back inside? How can I restore my relationship with God? And you will see in these verses that the Israelites didn't really understand what God wanted most and first. What God really expected of them. You see, God had, the Lord Yahweh, had entered into a covenant relationship with them. Yeah, a relationship that involved expectations, laws, requirements, But it was a relationship that was supposed to show up in obedience. But the Israelites had transformed or corrupted that covenant relationship into a detailed, externally focused contract of empty, hypocritical obedience to those expectations. And it seems like this representative hypothetical Israelite worshiper in verses 6 and 7 seeks to establish the price that will win God's favor by raising the bid higher each time. It appears he assumes that God, like men, could be bought. Verse six, it begins with the question, what should I bring before the Lord? And and it could be translated with the idea of with what, or by what means can we restore our relationship with God? And he offers three options of increasing value and sacrifice. First of all, Total dedication, verse 6. He says there in verse 6 Should I come before him with burnt offerings with year old calves? I mentioned this yesterday that the, the highest sacrifice in the Old Testament sacrificial system was a burnt offering. It involved the consumption of the entire animal on, on the altar, whereas all but the guilt offering, all the other sacrifices in the Levitical sacrificial system involved a, a bit a small bit of the animal near normally the fat area, but behind the kidney that would be taken off and offered on the altar, and then the rest of the animal would be eaten by the priest or the priest and the worshiping family. So the burnt offering was a big deal. It involved bringing a, a year-old calf to be sacrificed and burned totally. And if any of you have farming in your background, it takes a lot of money to keep a calf for a year and feed it so it grows and grows well, and it's like prime You want to sell a calf on the market and make good money, you have a place you're going to buy those left and right. So, most of you have this idea of a a yearling calf was viewed as the best, took a lot of feed, and received a lot of attention by that time. It was a a demanding sacrifice. Whoa, maybe I should offer the Lord a, a burnt offering, a calf of a year old. The best, the top sacrifice in the sacrificial system. Let's go up one more. How about abundant? Sacrifice in verse 7. It says here that should I come before him with burnt offerings, idea number one, or seven, would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 streams of oil? If I'd be able to spend more time on what we have to understand with the prophets, hyperbole is part of what happens where you, you, you use beyond description kind of amounts. So maybe God would want a mammoth, abundant sacrifice, something like King Solomon offered God when he dedicated the newly constructed temple to him and offered hundreds of animals as sacrifices. And I want you to notice this progression from 1,000 to 10,000 occurs in other places in the Bible and ancient or Eastern literature. And it, it, isn't, it isn't, doesn't mean what Saul thought it meant in 1 Samuel 18, 7, where I have there as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David has tens of thousands. And Saul hears that and he's just upset. They're giving David credit for 10,000 and me just credit for 1,000 and they don't like me and I'm not happy and David's the problem. And I'm going to kill him. Well, he, he was, you, you can set yourself up for being upset sometimes. Has that ever happened to you? Of course, I've just heard that happen before. i you're on your way home and something's bugging you and you're kind of getting upset and you walk into the door and somebody says something and you just totally react badly. And you don't understand what they said and you're just, that's what happened to Saul because you know what? The thousand, ten thousand is a poetic expression to show beyond description. Lots and lots and lots. What they were saying with Saul was, Saul is killed as thousand and David is tens of thousands. The reason Saul is first is because he's the king. He deserves the prominence, but thousand, ten thousand—that progression isn't saying to compare the numbers. He only did a thousand, but David tens of thousands. It's saying thousand to ten thousands, is saying both in overwhelming, unimaginable quantities. So, what, what is this hypothetical worship we're talking about? Offering to the Lord these unimaginable numbers, rams and rivers of oil. Now again, rams are not less important than oils. It's this progression where 1,000 to 10,000 are meant to be taken as a whole, beyond imagination amounts. And rams come first because they have a prominent place in the sacrificial system. So imagine the scenario with me. How can the chosen people, God's chosen people, bridge the chasm between them and their covenant Lord? Perhaps they could involve a burnt offering, The most expensive sacrifice that involved the entire animal being consumed on the altar. Let's take take a step above that. How about outrageously lavish sacrifice? How about a thousand rams that no one could afford? How about 10,000 streams of oil? Now, I I would pursue that some further, but I I need to move on. But I want you to understand what this means is 10,000 flooded rivers of oil. You don't have them up here. We have them in Southern California called dry riverbeds, right? But throughout the land of Israel, from the hill country down to the coast and down to the Jordan River area, it's a very dry. You have lots of dry riverbeds called a wadi. And every spring you have people camping in those wadis because it's a nice flat area with, with dirt and sand from when the water passed over it. And then every year you read about people who didn't know it was raining up in the hill country and they're sleeping in the night and they hear a rumbling sound and they open the, the tent flaps. And here comes this 15-foot wall of water about 20 feet away and they're toast. And they're swept into the Dead Sea. That, that, that wadi in the rainy season is what they're describing here. 10,000 overflowing wadis, dry riverbeds with oil, to get this magnitude of what he's talking about. So would God be pleased if It was abundant, lavish, beyond comprehension sacrifice. Here's the third option. And that is absolute sacrifice, very personally focused. In the end of verse 7, as a dad, it just pains my heart to read this, but should I give my firstborn for my transgression? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the child of my body for the sin of my soul, for my own sin? So this last hypothetical option represents the greatest sacrifice, the culmination of what a person could sacrifice to their God. More precious than a burnt offering, even more treasured than a thousand rams and ten thousand rivers of oil. This hypothetical worshiper throws out the idea that would have paralyzed him with pain, the very thought of it. What if I were to offer my own son, leave my firstborn son, my own flesh and blood, as some kind of payment for my sin that has created this chasm between God and me? Those are the three ideas, and we come to God's, Yahweh's remedy for his covenant nation. I'll come back to that. Now, it's almost like there's another pause between verses seven and eight. The hypothetical worshipers offered his suggestions, and to be frank, all of his ideas were a bonehead suggestions. Just dumb. Israel didn't get it. Now, let me illustrate it this way, guys. Do you empathize with this? Have you ever said or done something really stupid? That, you, that did not make a positive contribution to your relationship with someone you love. I'm thinking of guys, our wives. You know, you, you say something or do something, and it's like you just created this gap. You're not just locked outside, you're locked in the doghouse with the deep freeze. What should you do? How do you get out of the doghouse? How do you get out of the deep freeze? Here are a couple of ideas. I'll go and buy my lovely bride some flowers. Maybe I should go and buy that mixer she's been wanting. For my wife, it'd be, maybe I would take her garage sailing. She loves garage sailing. Now, at the outset, let me say that those are all bonehead ideas in this context. I'm not saying to bring home flowers to your wife, buying her that mixer, or doing something with her that she really likes. They're not good things. Here's the point. When we have some kind of a attention in our relationships with people we love, the solution rarely revolves around things or stuff. And yes, there are things we can do to help restore a relationship. There, there's stuff that could be involved as part of that, but you know what? In that in that whole illustration of, let's say you or me with our, our sweet wife, and we've kind of created a gap. What we generally need to be to do in, in those relationships is to be a loving husband who lives as if Your and my wife is the greatest treasure to us on earth. To live that way. As opposed to checking some items off the get out of the doghouse list. See, the prophet Mike here transitioned from the Israelite bonehead ideas, which revolved around stuff, to what God is really looking for. And without introducing a new speaker in verse 8, the verse makes an abrupt but fundamentally important affirmation. The prophet switches roles, taking off the robe of the hypothetical Israelite worshiper, asking questions. And now he returns to being the prophet of God, giving God's message to his people. And he provides the answer for this concern about how do I bridge the gap between me and my God? What is God looking for? And his answer is amazingly generic. It's a verse that many of us have memorized. Let's talk about it. Mankind, oh man... He has told you what is good and what, the Lord, what, is it, what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. In the preceding verses, we've read about my people, his people, reminding us about the covenant nation and the relationship God is pursuing with them. And here he says, oh man, he has showed you, oh man, what is good. And why does not he say, oh Israelite? I think he has Israel in mind still, but he wants his chosen people to see who they are. They're the creature, not the creator. They're man, not God. They're frail creatures with nothing to offer God that he needs except their loyalty, except their dependent, except their faith relationship with him. That's ultimately what he wants. Now, what in the world is that slide? Now, I can't go down this road very far, but there's a structure in, in the Old Testament Hebrew that's called a chiasm where you have it's kind of like a, a forward and reverse. Gear, So you go one, two, three, four, five, four, three, two, one. And, and sometimes when you have that chiastic structure, there's, in this case, when you have a fulcrum, a, an apex item is good. That's where the focus of attention is. You notice how, except for at the, at the end, there's a reversal of one of them. But he is told, he, re, he requires you from you, O man, Yahweh, what and what is good. And so the the reason he does that is Mike is trying to focus the attention, to funnel the attention of, of his readers in that day who would understand the point of the structure that would have been memorable, would have been vivid, and would have helped them have focus. He wants, the central word here is good. Something God approves of, something God values. And that's what he wants people to make the object of their pursuit. If you remember in Genesis 1, at various points in the creative week, the Lord saw what he had made and thought it was good. After creating mankind, he saw what he had made and said it was very good. What is it that God values? What is it that he calls good? What is it that God fervently wants from his people? What's, What's good according to God's value system is the question. And he tells that to us at the end of verse 8, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. And I want you to notice here, the life described at the end of verse 8 is not... Religion, if that means buildings, whether a temple, a synagogue, or a church, sacrifices and ceremonies. These verses describe a God honoring life, the essence of what God expects from his people of all ages. And he's not writing something revolutionary here. Hosea 6 6, just nearby, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. It doesn't mean he doesn't want sacrifices or burnt offerings. But the sacrifices and burnt offerings are never meant to be a replacement of a growing intimate relationship with him, but they're an expression of their growing intimate relationship with him. So he wants sacrifices, but he wants something from the inside out. So let me quickly go through those three terms to act justly, first of all. Um, A lot to be said here, but the word justice is not merely a legal term. We've talked about it a little bit yesterday in the intro to the prophets where I said that God gave the law to his people. There are vertical dimension laws and horizontal dimension laws. And those horizontal dimension laws, how you deal with other people, there are kind of two sets of characteristics that God is looking for. And one is justice, equity, and kindness and compassion. And so the point is, is that in a world full of sinners, where people don't do what's right, what's equitable, what's just. God's people could put his character on display by being men and women characterized by this passion for what would show the world his character, to, to see what it means to be just, to care for others. So justice is a positive and a negative side. A person who is characterized by justice is going to avoid doing those things. They would take advantage of people like the poor, the needy, the the widows, the fatherless, and the resident foreigner. And a person possibly who is committed to justice will defend the cause of, care for, help those who are at the edge of society in Israel, fellow Israelites. And, and he mentions it here sadly because that is anything but what they were doing. In Micah 2, he's describing Israelite on Israelite conduct. And he says here, Woe to those who plant iniquity and to those who plot evil on their beds, and all this is against fellow Israelites. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, widows, orphans, and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home and a fellow man of his inheritance. I mean, it's just the opposite of doing justly. Dog eat dog, step on heads carry out your agenda to build your kingdom, your, your, your land holdings at the cost of another Israel you should be caring for and showing kindness and compassion to and defending their cause. He's saying take care of each other rather than take advantage of each other. Love mercy. Second one. To love mercy. The word mercy here is translate, the translation of this committed love based on a previously established bond we're a relationship. It's loyal love, loving kindness, steadfast love is the word. It's, it's comparable to that love that will not let me go in a famous hymn. A central idea is a fixed and unflinching commitment to an established relationship. God had entered into this relationship with the nation of Israel. He was un- unswerving in his tenacious commitment to that relationship. So that describes God, but he's telling them to love mercy. And you know what the unique thing is here? Lots of verses talk about doing mercy. Here he says, love mercy. He wants them to, and the love here again is not just saying, have the warm pitter-patter of your heart toward mercy. It's talking about this wholehearted embracing, because it's God's valued commodity, if you will, mercy. Love it. It's to make it a core part of your being, and the result will be, doing mercy. And why was this so needed? Well, look at Hosea 6, 4, again, sad, 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 describing God's people treatment of one, each other. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your steadfast love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Here in a moment, only a moment, gone for the most of time. No, you need to love mercy. And finally, to walk humbly with your God. The first two components of Micah's Exhortation deal with horizontal relationships to do justly, to love mercy, and the final one deals with a person's relationship with God more directly. Just as my people highlighted the privilege of Israel to have Yahweh as their God, the expression "Your God" while coming with "Your God" should remind Israel of His claim on their life. The basic idea of this expectation was for Israel to understand their position before God. They're not the boss. They're not the one who calls the shots. They're not the ones who should be charting the course. They're not the ones who are supposed to be creating the agenda to pursue. No, God wanted his people to conduct themselves as the followers of the great and awesome God of the universe. He wanted them to live in light of the fact that he they were his. They belonged to him. He created them, he redeemed them, he formed them. He was their Lord. They need to live in light of God's word and not their own ideas. Pay attention to God's will, not just focus on their own desires. Their eyes need to be fixed on God, like a humble servant watching his master for direction. So, the prophet Micah says to his people, who seem to be thinking that stuff and things and rule keeping was how they're going to fix this chasm between them and God, and no, it was relational. Is pursuing a growing, intimate relationship with Him that, that, that involves internal reality. All of these things start in the heart. To to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God is something that is the overflow of a heart that's on fire, because there's an awesome God that has captivated their attention. So, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Oh wow, is that all God asks from us? <laughs> well, on the one hand, it's not a complicated formula. For sure, it's very simple. It isn't like 613 rules that are the summary of what God wants. It's this internal reality that shows up in obedient living, yes, obeying those expectations of God in a way that puts God's character on display. So there is a, there is a simplicity, or it's not rocket science, but on the other hand, it's one of the greatest challenges we'll ever face one of the scholars had this to say about the life envisioned by Micah. At first, it does not sound like much, but it's more than enough for a lifetime. So as you look at God's expectations for His children, for His followers of the nation of Israel, is there anything of relevance for us, His children in the church, found in Micah 6? But does God want mere external conformity to a list of rules and regulations, no matter how biblical that list might be? Does God want fundamentally, importantly, primarily external conformity to a list of rules and regulations, no matter how biblical that list might be? Is he only interested in church attendance, offerings, Christian service, and so on? No, he wants his followers to be devoted to him from the heart, just like the Lord demonstrated his expectations of his people through the prophet Micah. We can see what the Lord expects of us today. He desires that what his children do, their obedience... Is a manifestation of what they are spiritually and not a cover for it. As far as the horizontal relationships are concerned, I think John 13, 34 and 35, scratch this itch. A new commandment I give you, love one another as I loved you, so, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You do justly, love mercy. Live a radically different life in a way that put God's character on display. That's exactly what John 13 is talking about. God wants us to manifest His character in our dealings with our spiritual brethren. And so, where are you at in your relationship with God? And what kind of a chasm is there in that relationship? Whether you're fixing the chasm or you're just pursuing God with a, a growing, vibrant relationship, this needs to be part of our lives. Inside-out conduct that is part of a vibrant, growing relationship that put God's character on display. And, and, and think about it with you and your fellow believers here at Living Hope Bible Church. How easy it is for you and me to carry a grudge against another brother or sister in Christ who has wronged us or said something that we don't like. What does it take to make us bent out of shape or upset and have tension How sensitive are we to the needs and the hurts of those around us in a way that shows up in action? Would anyone have the slightest idea that we are His disciples by the way we care for each other? Doing justly, loving mercy. No, I'm not saying this because Pastor Joe has told me you guys are bums and you hate each other's guts and you aren't doing this. But like me, you have sinful hearts. You can get off track. You can get consumed with other things. The point is, when you think of what God wants most from us, He wants us to live a life that puts His character on display. And there are horizontal implications of how we do that. And then with regard to our walk with God, remember it says, walk humbly before your God. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a the praise. Therefore, honor God with your body. Just like Israel was created, formed by God, he was their redeemer, he was their maker, he was the one that was to be their sovereign, their, their, their Lord that they followed and pursued. Do I live, do you live like one who belongs to God when we sin, when we neglect to carry out a command from an inside-out way, when our heart is not moved by the spiritual needs of others in the world around us? Can we say we're really walking humbly with our God or living like those who've been bought with a price? And my heart is convicted by these very questions as well. So what does God want from us as his children, as his followers? As with Israel of old, he longs that we have a relationship with him that's from the heart. And again, I no way want to diminish the importance of concrete acts of righteousness, avoiding sin, practicing righteousness, obeying God's expectations. I want to make sure this one point is clear. God is not at all, at all interested in heartless obedience a ritualistic crossing of our theological T's and dotting of our I's. The Lord wants each adult, each young person, each child to obey him and to avoid unrighteousness because it's what our heart compels us to do. He has showed you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. May God help us to have a proper Relationship with him. A relationship with him that's growing and vibrant, that comes from the heart, that shows up in, in world-impacting obedience, putting his surpassing character on display. Father, I thank you again for this powerful set of truths that comes from one of your prophets that was meant to strike the heart of We are covenant people in the Old Testament, but praise God, it was meant to strike our hearts as well. I do pray that we would never be content with going through the motions, pursuing things, stuff, activity alone. There really is nothing less than a veneer to cover who we really are. I pray that you would help us to hunger and thirst for a, a life that lives, a, pursues a life of loyalty in an inside-out way, from heart to the outside, so that we can consistently and vividly put your amazing, surpassing character on display. I pray that the brethren here at Living Hope would be more able to be a light in a dark world, to point the people in their lives to your awesome greatness and your amazing love and mercy and grace in a way that would draw them to salvation or convict their brothers and sisters in Christ to pursue you even more. And so we ask by your Spirit to be able to to help us be who we can't be on our own, to do what we can't do on our own as part of this pursuit of you from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen.